Last time I was up here, um, I think we finished 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. We're, we're back in Corinth. Corinth must have been uh, a fun place if you were a total heathen. It's like the Disney world for the flesh. Uh, Fulfilling the flesh, fulfilling the desires, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh was part of their religion and their idolatry. They worshipped the goddess, and it was just party town, carnal. And uh, that was the culture. And it was amazing that there were conversions there because you've got this place, like I think I said last time I was up here, where indulgence of the flesh is their religion. And then in comes this guy, Paul the Apostle, and he's preaching to them a religion of total denial of self and death to the flesh. I mean, who would go for that unless the Lord zaps him? And, and there were conversions. It just goes to show us that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, so we're back in Corinth, and in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. You know, Paul wanted to teach them. He had so much to share with these people. So, so he, was, he was, in a sense, the Bible walking around back then. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And Paul, he was sharing with them the word of God. And he had so much to share with them. But there was a wall keeping them from receiving from the Lord and keeping them from growing in their knowledge, in the knowledge of the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And that wall that was separating them was their carnality. They were carnal. They were missing out on so much. Paul must have been very frustrated. He said that when he, in another book where he talked about his trials, he said, and, and my daily concern for the church. And he must have been very concerned for these people because they were missing out on so much. They were missing out on so much joy and so much peace and so much growth. They, they were missing out on that fellowship and communion with the Lord because of their carnality. It, it was like a roadblock. Their culture. Culture is defined as the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. So a culture is made up of the arts. And the culture is made up of the prevailing thought patterns that happened to be going on at the time and in the past. Uh, in our culture, there are, it's made up of the arts and the, the thoughts. And it, there are good things in our culture and there are bad things in our culture. And we as Christians judge the worth of all things by the word of God. We look at what's going on around us, what we hear, what we see, and we judge its worth in relationship to the word of God. The culture of a society per, 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 permeates, thank you, permeates, seeps into uh, everything, all a society and nation's institution. Uh, the culture seeps into government, it seeps into schools, our educational system, it seeps into our private lives, it seeps into the church, which is why you see churches today celebrating same-sex marriage, because the culture has been brought into the church, the popular culture has been brought into the church. 
If you want to know what the culture is today, look to the younger generation. Look to the kids. See what their worldview is. Uh, what they consider right and good. What they reject and why. And, and you'll see what the culture is today. The driving force in our culture today, I believe, is the entertainment industry. That, that's what feeds and drives and forms our culture today. There was a time when the force behind the culture and the influence in the culture was the church. And it wasn't that long ago. Not that this was a Christian nation or that everybody believed. Uh, the sins being committed today have always been committed. But because of the influence of the church, there was a morality that, set, that established borders, that, that established boundaries, even in the entertainment industry. You, you can look back. You know, they, they wouldn't allow on television uh, Lucy and Desi to be in the same bed. There was this, this morality. There were borders because of the influence of the church. That influence that the church had is gone in our culture. It has dissipated. Why it has is another subject. But the church doesn't have the influence on the culture that it did before. The driving force in our culture today is a religion of idolatry. And the name of the idol that our culture worships is self. And you can see uh, all the things around us, all the ways that the worship of that idol is manifested in all our institutions, in our government, in our schools, in our churches. The, the culture seeps into everything. Carnality, Paul said, I can't speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal people, Carnality can be defined as what the Bible says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's basically carnality. Corinth was a carnal city. Uh, sexual immorality, materialism, the pride of life, this was considered their religious duty. It was part of their religious practice. Not only was it accepted and normalized and, and celebrated, it was considered your religious duty. You know, I wonder, I hate to think, how much of my life is spent in carnality and not in true spirituality? And how much my life is spent in carnality when I think I'm being spiritual? You know, thank God for the cross. Paul, he comes to Corinth, or he wrote to Corinth, uh, he heard what was going on in the church, and he had to point out their carnality. He had to point it out to them, you folks are being carnal. That's, that's why I can't share with you. I can't give you these deeper truths. You can't grow in your knowledge of Christ because of your carnality. You're suing each other. You're ripping each other off, and you're suing each other, he said in Corinthians. You know, you're ripping each other off, and you're going before Judge Judy in front of unbelievers, and, and you're bringing shame to the church. You're being carnal. Uh, you've got little divisions within the church. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Christ. You know, the, the self-serving, uh, you know, I want to be with my group and, and we're better than you. And he's saying, you're, you're carnal, you're carnal. And there's not going to be any growth and you're not going to go any farther until you repent. And, you know, he, he points out to him, he says, you know that guy who's having an affair with his father's wife? Not good. And they're like, really? That's everybody, you know, that's what's the big deal? 
that, that's common. That's our culture. Satan has always desired to destroy Israel, the people God used to accomplish his purpose, which was to reveal himself through salvation through the cross. And Satan has tried everything to destroy Israel. You know, you look back through history, constantly trying to destroy Israel. Uh, he tried everything. But the thing that got them was when they came into the promised land, the culture of the people of this land was the weapon that was used to finally defeat them, to exile them from the land, to disperse them, the culture around them. Joshua 23, Joshua says to the people, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they will be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. They came into the promised land and ended up assimilating themselves to the culture of the people around them. The culture of the land overwhelmed them. The pervasiveness of culture will determine either the life or the death of a nation. The Bible says that we need to come out from among them and be separate. If we find that we have been unequally yoked with the culture, and it's affected all of us, there is no way it can't. We need to pray. We need to pray. Uh, because to some degree or another, it breeds carnality. And we want to grow in the knowledge of God. And we don't want that roadblock to be put up. We want to grow in our knowledge of him, grow in grace, and be those lights. You know, Jesus said, a light on a hill, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You know, to be in that place where, where the light that is in us just can't be hidden. Paul said that he couldn't talk to them as spiritual people. Spiritual people are those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And they are truly the only spiritual people. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in them, every other religion, every other form of spirituality, every other philosophy, because it doesn't have the Spirit of God in it, is carnal. Every other one. Christianity is the only religion that has the Holy Spirit that is spiritual. It doesn't have, others don't have the spirit of God, therefore other religions and philosophies, they're of the flesh. Now spiritual people, Christians, as we all know, we can be carnal. These Corinthians, they were saved, they were Christians, they were born again Christians, and yet they were living in carnality and not growing. There is a residue of the fallen nature in each one of us. Carnality is serving oneself by behavior contrary to the commandments of God. Romans, Paul wrote, in Romans 7.15, he said, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. You know, I, I know what is right. I have the word of God. And I know what is right, and I know what is wrong. I know what is beneficial. I know what's going to destroy. I agree with what is right. Your judgments are right and true. We know that God is right. 
and I want to do what is right, but then I engage in what is, what is wrong. And Paul said in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this carnal, fleshly body? There are two covenants in the Bible. The first one, the old covenant, between God and Israel, was a promise to bring Israel into the promised land and that once there, they would prosper. That was the covenant. I'm going to bring you into the land, and when you get there, you're going to prosper and, and grow, and you're going to become like a light to the world. This covenant was based on their obedience. If you obey the voice of the Lord, then this will happen and this will happen. If you obey the voice of the Lord, then you will be brought into the land and you will prosper. They disobeyed his voice and ended up being exiled from the land. That was the first covenant. The new covenant established by Christ is not to bring us into a, a place, a material, a physical place, but to bring us into the kingdom of God. Uh, this covenant is based on one man's obedience, not ours. Our devotion or lack of devotion to God has nothing to do with our salvation. Our zealous devotion to God will not get us into the kingdom of heaven, and our lack of devotion to God will not exile us from the kingdom of heaven. It's based on one man's obedience. But if we want to prosper in the kingdom of God and not suffer loss, obey the voice of the Lord. It still holds. I know I'm saved. I know that if I were to croak tonight, I would go to heaven because of what Jesus did for me, because of his death and resurrection. But in examining my life, the loss that I see in my life, I can look back and I can see it's because I didn't do what God said. If we want to prosper in the kingdom of God, obey the voice of the Lord. Who will deliver me from this carnal body of death, Paul said. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Carnality and culture. So what is the cure? What is the cure for our carnality? And, and how do we escape the influence and the grasp of the culture? Uh, turn to Galatians chapter 5, please. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. Romans, it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When people think of freedom, we think of human rights, um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of thought. You know what? I am so thankful for these things. This is all good stuff. It's, an, it's amazing the form of government that the founding fathers f founded, that we would have this freedom, freedom to speak, freedom to say whatever we want, freedom to worship, freedom to think. Um, 
human rights, all good things, and I hope and pray that we never lose these rights. But the freedom that Christ gives, if in these mortal bodies we were to receive a full revelation of the freedom that we have in Christ, we would explode. We would explode with joy if we, if we had a full revelation of that. However glorious the freedoms we have in this country, they're like a firecracker. The freedoms that we have, the freedom that we have in Christ is like a nuclear explosion. We have peace with God. I mean, what more is there? What more could anybody ask for in existence than to have peace with God? Peace that can never be taken away. Peace that we can't mess up. We, we have peace with God. And it has nothing to do with our obtaining it through anything but faith. It has to do with our faith in the only one who is perfectly obedient. We have peace with God. And he says, stand fast in the freedom and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You know, are, are we trying to justify ourselves by some form of legalism, by doing something? If we are trying to justify ourselves before God by our obedience, then we aren't standing fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Verse 2, it says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. There were Judaizers coming into the church and saying, yes, you believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law. And Paul's saying, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you think that there's some outward activity, even if it's according to the law, that will make you acceptable to God, you're lost. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. He who lives by legalism dies by legalism. He who lives by the Spirit of God lives by the Spirit of God. Four, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. If you try to justify yourself by your devotion to God, or if you condemn yourself because of your lack of devotion to God, you've fallen from grace. All there is is grace. I think I said this, shared this last time I was up here, but it stuck with me. There was an elderly pastor that I heard, and someone questioned or talked to him, questioned him concerning his sermons, and he said, we can only speak about the things that we know. And he said, I only know three things. Failure, grace, and peace. Verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Just faith. The only thing that matters is faith in Jesus, faith in someone outside of ourselves. People came to Jesus and said, what can we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, the works of God are this, believe in the one whom he sent. That's the work of God. Believe that he is your righteousness before God. And the fruit of that faith in a person's life is love. That's what comes out. Faith expresses itself 
only in love. It's the only expression that we have of faith, that we really do have faith. All that matters is the inward. The inward will, never, will, the inward will become outward. The outward will never become the inward, but what is inward will be seen outward. Got that? I have no idea. Verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. You know, Paul's asking these people in the church, who is it that brought in the carnality into the brought legal the carnality of legalism into the church? Who was it that brought in the carnality of the culture that's surrounding you? Who brought that into the church? And hindered you from obeying the truth? The truth being that in Galatians it says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It spreads. You put a little bit of leaven in and it just migrates. It, it spreads. Carnality is a virus that spreads. And the flesh loves to feed. One carnal word spoken, one carnal action taken, one unrepentant carnal trespass open and known and not confronted in love can leaven, can leaven the whole lump. True spirituality also spreads as we edify one another and love one another. Verse 10, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So these things, you know, I, he says, Paul says, I have confidence in you. Not, he didn't have confidence in the people that they would turn around and, and repent from this carnality. He had confidence in the Lord that you'll have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment. We see the assault of the culture on, our on the church and on our nation. And we see the assault of false doctrine spreading through the church. You know, some effective weapons against the church. Uh, things that are coming in. Satanic things to destroy. And we also hear the words of Jesus in Luke. He said, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. The offense of the cross. you got to wonder, why would the cross be offensive? Uh, even if someone doesn't believe, doesn't everybody love the song Amazing Grace? Isn't it a beautiful song? To believer and non-believer. The cross is an offense to people because it kills the flesh. It, it, it's a threat and it's death to the flesh. Verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Ouch. There were people who Paul did not put up with. There were people who Jesus did not put up with. You know, the money changers in the temple. Uh, that time in the synagogue when there was a man with a withered hand and they were getting down on Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath. And it says Jesus was there 
and the man was there who needed healing, and Jesus looked around at the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And there was no answer. And it says he looked around at them with anger. There were people that he didn't put up with. There were people that Paul didn't put up with. There were people coming into the church who were, who were saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and we're saved through faith. He died for us, and he rose again from the dead. But you also have to, and you can fill in the blank with, with whatever would go against the truth. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We've been called to freedom, but don't use that as an opportunity to sin, as an excuse to sin. You know, we hear the phrase, cheap grace. Some people have even said you can't always be talking about grace because people will take advantage of it. There's no such thing as cheap grace. All there is is freedom by grace. We are called to freedom, but that doesn't mean lawlessness. Paul warns about lawlessness under the guise of, of, of perceived grace, which is blasphemy. Moses, in the Old Testament, spelled out Israel's sin. He said, you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness for the abundance. You know, theirs was a material abundance. You know, all this that God has given you, this abundance that God has given you, and you didn't serve him with joy and gladness. And theirs was material. Ours is a spiritual and eternal abundance beyond comprehension. Moses in the Old Testament, stood up before the people and gave the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. In Deuteronomy 29.19, it says, And so it may happen when the people are standing there listening to this, the curses, or the blessings and the curses, that there's somebody there saying in his heart, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. You know, so a person who hears the law and says, meh, I'll be all right. Even though I follow the dictates of my own heart, I'll be okay. You know, what of a person who hears the word of grace and says, I will have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart? Who says, because of grace, I can live godless. He goes on and he says, the Lord would not spare him. For then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. The unforgivable sin is rejection of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, turn for a minute to Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 26. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. As Christians, sometimes we stumble into sins and sometimes willingly. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. I choose to do it anyways. The consequences of sin 
are a horror. But for the Christian, a sacrifice for sin has been made once and for all. But those who reject the way, the life, and the truth, Paul's saying here, there is no sacrifice for sin. Verse 27, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. When we sin, when Christians sin, people who have the spirit within them, within them, when we sin, we get convicted. We get convicted. And with the purpose, the Holy Spirit convicts us with the purpose of always bringing us back. You know, we tell the kids in Sunday school, there are two words that you will never hear from God. Go away. And there are two words that you will always hear from God. Come closer. We can feel condemned. And I put the emphasis on feel condemned. And there are consequences for sin, but if we're a believer, if we're born again, we're not an adversary of God. You are his child. Verse 28 in Hebrews says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. Paul is talking here about someone who does not have the spirit of God in them. Someone who would use the grace of God as a justification to sin. Someone who thinks that because of grace, it's okay to sin. He's talking about someone, people who love darkness and don't have the love of God in them. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Our salvation costs more uh, the price of our salvation is more than we will ever know. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we're on verse 14. It says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God wants us to do. Uh, in Ephesians, it says to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ so that you will be able to love God. And love God so that you will be able to love others. Romans, it says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The love of God is the cure for carnality. The knowledge of the love of God. Verse 15, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another, which was happening in Corinth. Their carnality was suffocating their lives. It was preventing them from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to give. Carnality will prevent us from experiencing abundant life. When carnality comes into any group, whatever it is, uh, a church, a marriage, we no longer build each other up, but we start tearing each other down. Carnality and culture. And then in verse 16, here's the cure. He says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is the antidote for carnality. The antidote for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. As long as we are in this flesh, this flesh is going to lust after that which will prolong its life and make itself feel good. As long as we are in this flesh, the flesh is going to want to live. 
And some of those things lead to sinful excess and could be the ruination of our lives. But if we walk in the spirit, Paul says, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Those lusts are going to be there because we're in the flesh. And, and that fallen nature, the residue of that fallen nature remains in us. But if we walk in the spirit, we won't fulfill those lusts. The spirit of God will be dominant in our lives and not our flesh. Uh, Paul is saying, don't do what the flesh desires, but by the power of the spirit, desire and do what God desires and live. So the question is, all right, if we walk in the spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We'll be free from carnality. We'll be able to experience that abundant life. We'll have that peace and joy. Uh, so how do we walk in the spirit? How do you do it? First thing is, we have to desire it. We have to truly want it. And that's a question that we should ask ourselves sometimes. Do I really want it? Uh, it's not a matter of our will or our willpower to walk in the Spirit. Romans 7.18, Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I, I see the benefit of walking in the spirit. I see the benefit of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But Paul says, to will, to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. In my flesh, I cannot truly desire to walk in the spirit, and I am unable to walk in the spirit, in the power of my flesh, in and of myself. But here's the key. Philippians it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not something we determine to do or attempt to do in the flesh. To walk in the spirit is something that happens because we have been with Jesus. It's not something we do, it's something that happens. For those who sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his voice and spend that time in communion with him and are just with him, and we find ourselves walking in the Spirit. Verse 17, it says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. The old spiritual battle. In our battle against the flesh, there is something that we always have to remember. And that is the war has been won. We are victorious in Christ. He says, these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The only proper and acceptable response to the gospel is absolute obedience to God. When you see the gospel, when we perceive what Christ, what happened on Calvary, the only proper response is complete, absolute obedience to God. But I find myself, because I'm in this flesh, not walking in perfect obedience to God, to say the least. Verse 18, he says, But, but, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are born again, if you're sitting here tonight and you have believed, you have asked Christ into your heart and asked him for forgiveness and for that life, and you are born again, if you are born again, then you are being led by the Spirit. You are. 
which means there is no law to condemn you because, as the Bible says, he has condemned sin in the flesh. He hasn't condemned us. He's condemned our sin. Read Romans chapter 8 when you get a chance. And don't misread verse 1. Verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. This is what was going on in the Corinthian church. This is what goes on in our flesh. Uh, these are the works of the flesh. And given the whole narrative of the Bible, looking at the commandments of God in the Old Testament and looking at what Jesus says about those commandments in the New Testament, I have to admit, I am guilty of every single one of these. But, Pastor Jeff's favorite saying, but God. I'm guilty. But, in 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he's talking about the works of the flesh and continuing in verse 21, he says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We all sin, but he's talking here about someone who practices it, someone without the spirit, someone who does not have the love of God in them. John says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will reap everlasting life. In Revelations 11.18, it says, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You know, how and why is the earth destroyed? It's destroyed by suppression of the truth of the gospel by word or deed. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, this is what, the, what God desires for us, what God wants in us, what God wants us to experience. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In Jeremiah, the Lord says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. We should read these verses every day, the fruit of the Spirit. And just to realize that this is God's desire for us. Love and joy and peace. He's not angry with us. He's not out to punish us. It's what the Spirit desires to grow in us. Jesus said in Luke, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is God's good pleasure to grow these wonderful things in us. Verse 24, it says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When Jesus died, your flesh died. When he rose, because of your faith in him, you became a new creation. 
John says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect, made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So in verse 25, he says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, which was Paul's message to the Corinthians. If we live in the spirit, if you are born again, you are living in the spirit. You are being led by the spirit in spite of ourselves. So if we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit. Questions. Has he loved us with perfect love? Say yes. Have we obeyed God perfectly? Say no. Does mercy triumph over judgment? Do we want to walk in the spirit? Mm-hmm. Will he complete the good work he started in us? Will he work in us to will and to do his will? Yes. Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen. May it be so. We pray in Jesus' name.